All right. Good morning. We are going to be resuming our series in 1 John. And so if you'll take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 2, we're going to be in verse 24. And we're going to cover verse 24 through 29 this morning. And the title of this message is The Fellowship's Anointing. So we're going to talk about the anointing of the Holy Spirit, what that means. I think that some people misunderstand that. They take it too far. And some people also undervalue it. They diminish the work of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to try to look at it from a biblically balanced perspective. But before we get into our text this morning, I do want to recap just a little bit from Rat last week because there were a few points that I intended to get to that I didn't cover. And so I really want to talk about a few things. So first, talking about the Gnostics, if you don't understand Gnosticism, you're going to have a really hard time understanding a lot of the references that John is intentionally making. So he, he's interacting, even if not directly, he's interacting with this theology that was prevalent in his day. So John's writing this around the 80s AD. All the other disciples at this point have passed away. The temple's been destroyed. He's like the last remaining survivor of that circle of eyewitnesses. There may have been some other people who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry, but none as prominent as John. And so at this time, as soon as the apostles start to pass away and they're diminishing in their influence because they are not walking the earth anymore, you have a lot of opposition rising up. And so it could be that maybe at this time they felt a little more emboldened because there weren't as many apostles to check their bad theology. And so John's dealing with that. He's like that last soldier on the battlefield trying to preserve sound doctrine. And so when he speaks to the church, he's speaking to them tenderly as little children, but he's also speaking very adamantly because he knows that this doctrine can very easily creep into the church and corrupt it and contaminate it. So Gnosticism, guys, to kind of put it in a modern perspective to understand what it's like, it's sort of like Hinduism and Buddhism. I'm sure y'all have heard of Enlightenment nirvana. Hindus call it moksha. Essentially, it's the same thing. It's this idea that we have to um, we have to free ourselves from the constraints of the physical world through some mystical experience. And the vehicle for that experience is often seen as meditation, right? And so you meditate and you can become enlightened and reach a high level of consciousness, uh, divine consciousness, if you will. The Gnostics were very similar in their teaching about that. They believed that knowledge was gained through a mystical experience. So rather than knowledge being doctrine-based, based on the written word or apostolic authority, they believed it was something that the individual could achieve through that exclusive experience. So that means you're going to have an elite, a spiritual elite who they've attained this knowledge, and this knowledge is sort of held back from everybody because the only way you can have this knowledge in their view is through a mystical experience. And so you can imagine how defeated this would make one feel. It's not very different than the mentality that goes with Pentecostalism in some circles, that is, because there's this idea if I don't have enough faith, if I'm not spiritual enough, then I'm not going to see healing. I'm not going to see tongues happen in my life. Uh, I'm not going to receive these supernatural gifts. I haven't been baptized with the Holy Spirit. I haven't had some secondary experience. And so it feels very defeated if you have other people holding that over you. And that's what was happening with Gnosticism. So 
For John, having knowledge of God is not a mystical experience. It's not about emotions. It's not about some, you know, other plane of existence that somehow you transcend this world and enter into the next. Okay, N- nothing like that. Sounds very New Age, and Gnosticism was a uh, expression of the New Age movement way back then. And of course, this New Age movement is no different than the paganism that started at the Tower of Babel. It's just happened in many different forms. But you can see that the undercurrents, you can see the similarities between all of them. But knowledge of God isn't about a mystical experience. I just got to meditate enough and then I can free myself from the trappings of limited human thought. That's not knowing God. Knowing God is having pure doctrine. Knowing God through the witness of Scripture. Jesus is not some, uh, what would you say, ephemeral, uh, ghost-like person who just appeared physical in our world. He is a physical, tangible person. And because he's a person, he wants to have a personal relationship with us. And that personal relationship is something that we have through the testimony of the apostles. They walked with them, they talked with them, and they hand that testimony to us so we can have fellowship with them, and by extension, have fellowship with God the Father and God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So you can see the difference there. Uh, Having knowledge of God in 1 John is an intimate relationship while Gnosticism is about this exclusive mystical experience. Having knowledge in 1 John is something available to everybody. Okay, It's simple as believing sound doctrine and loving one another, and you know if you're doing those things, holding the doctrine that's sound, and, and, and having this loving lifestyle with believers, if you have both those things, you know that God knows you. And even if you feel like maybe you are missing something, if you feel like, I just don't feel like I'm contributing much to God. Uh, You're racked over past guilt, um, but you've stopped walking in that sin. You're walking with the Lord, but you still feel like you're just nothing. Have you ever felt that? And and so John is saying in his book, in 1 John 3.20 in particular, he's saying, even when your heart condemns you, this is how you assure yourself. You love the brethren. And so if you're loving the brethren, even if you feel like you're falling short, you know that God knows you, God recognizes what you're doing, and he approves of it. And so having sound doctrine and loving one another is the simplest way for us to know that we're doing God's will. And so that's something that I wanted to recap from last week, because there's a very big difference between knowing God in John's sense and having a gnosis, a mystical experience like the Gnostics believed. I would say so, yeah. I would absolutely say so. And in fact, when you read up on the Gnostics, there are lots of different versions of Gnosticism, so it's kind of confusing trying to explain it. But they believed in many powers. They believed that angels, uh, even Christ, uh, they believed that all these powers, when you add them together, they made up what's called the Pleroma, the fullness of God. So God, God is like this one unifying principle, and all these different expressions of him are called aeons. And so you have all these aeons, you have angels, you have demons, and and they all consist of, or together they, they make up the Pleroma, yeah. And so it sounds a lot like Hinduism, because in Hinduism you have Brahman, you have like this one divine principle, God is all, all is God, and then you have expressions of this principle, and they would call those expressions or manifestations gods. But they would say, ultimately, we're all part of the one. And so Gnosticism is achieving, is, is basically touching that realm. It's, it's transcending the physical, which is bad in Gnosticism. That's not how the Bible presents it at all. Yes? 
Yes, the ascetic movement is really popular among Hindus. It's not the only path that you can take. There are lots of different paths to enlightenment uh, in Eastern mysticism, but asceticism is one. And that was something that the early church dealt with too. Uh, so Paul wrote against ascetic you know, branches in Christianity, like you've got to you know, make the body suffer in order to attain uh, fellowship with God. So there were a lot of ideas at this time in history that were competing with the hearers. The people that are listening to John, they're being told this very specific doctrine that was handed to them by the apostles. Then you have all these other people, and what makes it really confusing is they would borrow terms. They would they would say, oh, we believe in Christ. And so someone who is ignorant and not well-founded or grounded in sound doctrine would be easily misled by that. Um, and so... Yes, they did. They wrote their own books. And so when you have competition like that, it made it very difficult. And I think it's interesting, too, that it was after John died that we start to see the books being written. It's like those apostles were sort of like, you know, people standing on a wall and they were holding back all of that. And as soon as they passed, uh, you notice Ignatius, um, his writings, he knew John personally. And he was talking about, listen, pastors have to be strong. And this is what led to bishops having a very... Uh, high position in the church, not really being shepherds that smell like the sheep as much, but standing above. And they became so rigid in their authority because at that time, that was the only way the churches were able to stand against all the Gnostics who were moving in and were misleading people and deceiving them. And so Ignatius is basically saying, pastors, you've got to, you know, get a hold of your church. And so the authority of pastors became so centralized and that would lead to this big difference between the clergy and the laity that you see in the Catholic Church later on. But um, it wasn't until after John died that all these books started to be written, and you have two different Christianities at this point. The false version of Christianity, which really isn't Christianity at all, and it's Gnosticism, and they borrow terms, like they'll talk about the apostles, they'll talk about Jesus, they'll talk about salvation, but they define them completely differently than what's taught in the New Testament. Paul and John and the rest of the authors, they're unified. You can see how they agree on these points of doctrine, but these new people that were coming in had another version. Um, so we have to be careful of that today, too. I think Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, um, there are other things as well that we could point out. But those are the two big ones, I guess, in this area more than anything. And people will say, I'm all about Jesus. I'm all about God. And their way that they understand Jesus, the way they understand God and salvation are very different than what Scripture actually teaches, so we have to be on our guard. Uh, but another thing I wanted to talk about from last week, and again, we got to move on here, but uh, he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. That was a statement that I really didn't explain. I kind of glanced over it. It was in verse 17, the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. I don't think that I could move forward into a new text without explaining that. So, in a sense, the will of God is to believe in the one that the Father has sent, because in John chapter 6, that's what Jesus says. When they say, what do we got to be doing to be doing the works of God? You know, what do we have to do to receive eternal life? He said, the will of God is that you believe in the one that the Father has sent, that God sent, and that's Jesus. So, everybody who is saved has done that. But again, there's a practical note in 1 John, and that practical note doesn't need to be diminished. And doing the will of God obviously goes beyond just believing. It starts there. But it's like we had that series on Hebrews 11. Faith, living faith, progresses beyond the believing in who Jesus is. Okay, that's the foundation, but we build on that foundation. So if anybody's ever had that foundation laid, and no one lays that foundation other than Christ, when you're born again, if you've placed your faith in the Lord, uh, once that's happened, you do abide forever having eternal life. You're never going to pass away. You're part of the new creation. 
And uh, as part of the new creation, you will not decay like the current one, which means the life that you have, it won't diminish. It's sort of like that. And I think this is a good analogy, a good illustration. In the old covenant, uh, it was based on works, right? And so works could only give you so much. In the Old Testament, Moses, when he came down from the mountain, he had this glow on him, right? But the glow would continually fade. And so that's the Old Testament. Works is never going to be able to give you something permanent. And that's why it says that God divorced Israel in the book of Jeremiah. Obviously, he is going to bring his bride back. They're going to repent. And it's going to be on the basis of Christ and the new covenant, the blood of the covenant. And so Israel is going to be a nation that never passes away because of the Abrahamic covenant. And that covenant's going to be fulfilled whenever they repent and believe in Jesus. But the new covenant's all about permanence. And so when you believe in Jesus, you're sealed. And that life that you have is not a temporary life that, that fades, but it's a life that stays forever. So whoever does the will of God abideth forever. You have eternal life, eternal security. But this also, I think, has to do with one's reputation. Now, again, reputation is a very, very big deal uh, among ancient cultures. And reputation, I think, also has a, a very big place in Scripture. Um, maybe not called exactly by that word. But I want to read you real quick a statement from the book of Daniel, a really important statement that ties in with the return of Christ, which we will talk about today. So in Daniel chapter 12, in Daniel chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 2, it says this, And many of them that wake, or sorry, and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So you have the two resurrections, one to life and one to the second death. And that's talked about in Revelation. But it says in verse 3, And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. So that's more than just being saved. It's many as turn people to righteousness. And so we didn't talk about this on uh, Friday, but in 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about there's different levels of glory in the heavens, you know. You have the glory of the sun and the glory of the moon, and each star has a different level of glory, different degree of glory. But the people that turn many to righteousness, they're going to shine forever and ever. And that seems to be stating that what we do in this world for Jesus, as we're serving him in our life, winning people to the Lord or investing in his kingdom at all. You know, we can't win people to the Lord in the sense that we can't make their decision for them. But if we are doing our best to fulfill the Great Commission and we're loving one another, and we're holding fast to sound doctrine, then in heaven, that investment is going to abide forever. And so we are going to be what we were meant to be. We were always meant to be sons and daughters of God. But being a son and daughter of God is not just your position, it's also your practice. So we come into the position of a child of God freely by grace, and that's never lost. But my children, obviously I'm raising them to be like me. I'm supposed to give them a good example. And I'm trying to model Christ to them. So I, hopefully I can say to my kids, follow me as I follow Christ. And so to be my child, it should be for all of us with children. It should be there to be like us and we're to be like the Lord. So being a child of God means... We're supposed to be like him. And, and if we're being like him, then we are fulfilling our role as children. And if we're fulfilling our role as children, then everything that we are giving to God, that is going to last. And, and I have it written down this way 
and I'm just going to state it as I wrote it because I think I, I stated it pretty well here. Our reputation consists of reflecting God's glory, and he is delighted in his children's imitation of him. If we're imitating Christ and our kids are doing that, then we should be delighted. We're delighted that they're imitating us as we imitate Christ. And we should be delighted in Christ, in his purpose for our lives. And we receive joy from that. And First John's all about joy. So we can receive the benefits of really being in practice a son or daughter of God right now. But knowing that one day we are going to receive a reputation if you have it. I mean, you could think of a different word for it if you want. But the idea is us being the sons and daughters of God now will be reflected in eternity forever, and that won't pass away. So recognize, recognition. So think about it this way. If you invest in the world, because he talks about the world passing away, let's say you get a big house. Let's say you get a successful career, and you become a millionaire. Let's say you go to Hollywood, and you become an actor, okay? And, and you have lots of success, like people looking at you, they're talking about you. Maybe you're a musician, Okay, and people are making albums, and these albums are going to be heard for decades and decades and decades. It's all going to pass away at some point, is what John's saying. So if you're investing in that, you're investing in something that is temporal or temporary. But if you invest in God's kingdom, that is not going to pass away. So not only will we as children of God being eternally secure never pass away, that our life is eternal, it abides forever, but our reputation as children of God, serving Him faithfully, that will never pass away. And yes, exactly. And, and of course, it's not, when I say this, it's not a selfish thing. It's not, hey, I want people to look at me. Of course, when God works in us and he changes us, it's meant to give him glory. It's meant to impact other people. So we're not an island. But when we stand before the Lord one day and we're recognized for that, He's going to be pleased because we were living for other people. We were living ultimately for Him. And so that glory is not a selfish glory like the world's glory is. Okay, It's about all the, the money that I can accrue, the wealth that I can get, that I can obtain. It's about shining bright for Jesus and making Him proud because that's what He wants. And, and that light, like you said, Christy, it's going to affect everybody around us. And so the one who does the will of God abideth forever. I think of not just the physical aspect of it. I think we'll literally shine brighter if we're faithful to the Lord. I literally think that's what is implied in 1 Corinthians 15. I think that the believers that are faithfully serving the Lord, as opposed to the carnal believers, will shine in a way that the other people will not have. But I'm not just thinking in those terms. I'm thinking in terms of people. You know, I think we've probably all said it at one point talking about someone like, you're, you're a jewel in my crown. I know my grandpa said that about his grandkids. Y'all are jewels in my crown. You know, the influence that I've had on y'all and, and my, my children, y'all are jewels in my crown. Those are investments that we make. I cannot wait to get to heaven and be able to see how God used my, my service for his name to bring people to him. And maybe when I get there, there'll be hundreds, who knows? that in some way were impacted by me. Maybe I was not the first in the string of influence. Maybe I was the one who watered. Maybe I was the one who reaped. But the fact is, I was doing my job as a child of God. And that will abide forever. Not just in rewards we receive, but in the people we bring with us. So the last thing I wanted to talk about as far as recap, and again, we may end up going into this next week, and that's fine. I don't want to rush it, right? I want, I want the Word of God to be digested and uh, really chewed on. 
the last thing is the unity of the Father and the Son. Um, in see, let me find it real quick for us. It's in verse 23. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Verse 23 in chapter 2 says that. So if the Son is lowered in our estimation, so must the Father be lowered. This is so important. There are so many heretics on the internet right now. So we're putting out this to try to counteract that, to reach people with truth. But just like, what's that? We're trying to be Johns, right? <laughs> we're trying to be those that are standing in the gap and saying, look, we see that influence waning. I feel it, guys. I, you know, seeing all the stuff that's coming out now in the SBC um, about, you know, the sexual abuse, um, it is making me think that this is exactly what Jesus meant when he talked about the Laodicean church. And so when we see that influence in really conservative denominations, like the SBC. I mean, if you think of like the number one champion of inerrancy and sound doctrine in the U.S., it's the SBC. And it shouldn't because Jesus told us it was going to happen. I mean, in his church, the Laodicean church, they weren't a bunch of pretenders. He's saying, you are my church, but I'm very disappointed in you. And those that I love, I chastise. And if you don't get your act together, I'll spew you out of my mouth. And so that means that in the end times, we might see the influence of the evangelical church in America wane. I know. I know. And again, going back to us shining as children of God and bringing people to the Lord, you can see how angry this would make God. Not angry at us because we're lost, but angry at us because we're his children and we know better. Right? You you know better. You're probably sure you've said that a million times to people, especially to kids. You know better than that. And we do certainly know better than that. Um, the evangelical church does. But one of the things that I'm also seeing is the son being lowered in his estim in our estimation of him. He's being brought down. There are a lot of people that are holding to this idea that Jesus became God at his baptism. In fact, I read about this, I think it was two years ago. It was on the internet. Uh, but it was somebody that I know, one of my uh, professors from Truett McConnell, and he said there was a church in Texas that was like completely given over to this adoptionist theology that Jesus became God at his baptism. And this was a Baptist church, guys, giving to the cooperative program, teaching this. I mean, it, it had infected that church, and he was talking about how it looks like there's hope for it because people have gone in there and they're starting to correct the bad theology. But just the fact that that could happen is just astounding to me. But we're seeing that happen. And this is not this is not something we should be surprised at. We talked about this last week. We have antichrists. And when we know those antichrists, their origin is the evil one, the enemy, the devil, Satan. And we see these people infiltrating the church and corrupting it from the inside. And that's why John's saying, I know y'all are part of the church. You're my little children. Like, I know that you have your sins forgiven and you have eternal life. You're abiding in him. He stated these things. So... He knows that they're believers, but he's saying this can grip you too. So watch it. Watch yourself. And the way we watch ourselves is how high is Jesus in our mind? Now, of course, Jesus is the Son of God, so he submits to the Father's will. I mean, the Father sent him into the world, and he willingly came. But in terms of worship and in glory and his nature as fully God, where is the Son? He should be up there with the Father. And if we're not giving the Son the same glory that the Father deserves, the Father is angry with us. That's important to point out that if we don't give the Son the exact same glory as the Father, we're not doing the Father any favors. He's not going to say, oh, well, I guess, you know, since you were trying to give me the supreme glory, I know you didn't give my Son that glory, but you were giving me the supreme glory, and so I guess I'll tolerate the fact that you downplayed the Son. No, he's going to say, if you downplay him, you downplay me. 
And the son says the same thing. You downplay the father, you downplay me. you got to have both of them on the same level. And that's what we see in the throne room picture of Revelation chapter 5. The same glory and honor and power that are given to the father are given to the lamb. And when everyone bows down, Jesus is standing. He's standing. He stands in the presence of the Father because no one else can stand in the presence of the Father except Jesus because he's not part of the creation. He's the creator. He became one with us, but that implies that he was greater before. And he still is great because he's exalted to the right hand of the Father with all authority in heaven and earth given to him. So, Yeah, and, and that's absolutely wrong. And if you read, again, if you read the New Testament, if you read like maybe Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, it's it's certainly hinted at there very, very strongly in many places that Jesus, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's very strongly hinted at and suggested. And I think that people who read those Gospels would have known exactly what these statements meant when Jesus talks about the Pharisees and he said, y'all believe the Messiah is the son of David, but the son of David, or sorry, but David calls him Lord. So how, why would he call him Lord? If he, yeah, if he's the son. What's that? Yeah, okay, so Jesus is certainly the name given to him in his humanity, but he was son of God from eternity past, and he was the Lord from eternity past. And so if you want to know who's, you know, what what name did he have, it was Yahweh. Yeah, because it says in Philippians 2 that he's given the name above every name. Of course, he already had that. He carried that with him into his incarnation, into his flesh. He was Yahweh here on earth. That's why he said, before Abraham came to be, before he was, I am. Right? He is the great I am. But in coming back from the dead, and we talked about this on Friday, in coming back from the dead and ascending to heaven, he is demonstrated as that which he was before. And the people didn't recognize it. His disciples, they believed it. At the Last Supper, they believed that he was from the Father and was going back to the Father, but they lost their faith for the, in that for a short time when Jesus died. But his resurrection and being taken up to heaven was a strong indication there that uh, he was from heaven, he was the Lord of heaven, and when you read the writings of Paul and you read the writings of John, this becomes super clear. Like, it's impossible to read Colossians 1, Philippians 2, John 1, Hebrews 1, without knowing that Jesus is preexistent as God. So we got to keep Jesus at the very top. And that's one thing that we cannot back down from. And that brings me to our first point today. Let's read verse 24. And we're not going to get through all these points. Let's see if we can get two. All right, so 1 John 2, 24. Let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And so the first fill in the blank there for your notes is, number one, maintain and don't deny your worthy labors for God. Maintain and don't deny your worthy labors from God. He is saying here, that they had held on to this. He actually praises them. Like, there's nothing here that they don't seem to be doing already. He's just reminding them that they can stop. Okay, you're abiding now. Don't stop abiding. He talks about that in 2 John 2. Right? If someone comes to your door and they're teaching bad theology, don't, don't invite them, don't participate in their doctrine, because if you do, you'll lose a reward. So he's saying, now you're doing well. He said, young men, you're abiding in the Lord. But he says here, in verse 24, let that therefore abide in you, let it continue in you, which you've heard from the beginning. 
If that which you have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, you shall continue in the Son and in the Father. So continue. So we need to maintain our worthy labors for God. He's saying you've done a good job because other people have started buying into this lie and you haven't. You've held on to that sound doctrine. So continue in it and don't deny your worthy labor because that really, guys, has a lot of negative consequences. Not just, you know, personally, emotionally, uh, you know, wondering, am I serving God? You know, I, I feel like I'm not doing enough for God. Okay, if you feel like you're not doing enough for God, that can actually lead you to look elsewhere. And that's why a lot of people in churches, they feel like I'm not being fulfilled in this church. And that makes them susceptible to buying into false doctrine. Legalism. You know what? Maybe if I keep the festivals, I'll feel like I'm more faithful. Maybe I'm doing the Lord's will if I'm keeping the festivals. Maybe I need to stop eating bacon. If you want to stop eating bacon, it's probably a good health choice. But it's not going to make you more spiritual. It's not going to make you more holy. But those seem harmless, right? They do seem harmless because they're superficial almost, okay? It's outward. It's ritual. But it can also lead you to be susceptible to false teachers. False teachers may come, and they may sound eloquent. Paul said that they sound eloquent. They come in there, and they're wolves in sheep's clothing. And they start teaching false doctrine. And at first, it seems like it's the same thing, but there's a spin on it. There's a twist on it that may not be apparent at first. And before you know it, you could be doing what John's saying you ought not to do. You've departed from the Lord. You're not continuing with Him anymore. And so we need to maintain our worthy labors for the Lord. And what are those worthy labors? It's as simple as maintaining pure doctrine and loving each other. And the pure doctrine that John teaches and that Paul teaches... I use them because they wrote the most, if you're looking at the New Testament letters. Uh, and I think they give us a good representation of sound doctrine. They look at it from different angles, okay? but they talk about the same stuff. Uh, John may talk about being born again. Paul talks about adoption. Okay, So uh, John may refer to Jesus as the Logos, the Word. Paul doesn't do that. Um, he refers to him as Lord. Uh, he refers to him as um, the firstborn. We talked about that on Friday, what that meant. If you're listening and you don't know what that means, listen up on uh, that podcast that we did Friday. And so they talk about things from different angles, but they're saying the same thing. And it's like two sides of the same coin. But pure doctrine would be Jesus has the highest level in your mind possible. That means he is above creation he is the creator, and he is eternal. If the Father is called beginning and ending, Jesus is called the beginning and ending. If the Father is called Alpha and Omega, Jesus is called Alpha and Omega. If the Father is called first and last, Jesus is called first and last. And so Jesus is God, and salvation is free. What do you got to do to be saved according to John? Believe and you have everlasting life. What do you got to do according to Paul? Call upon the Lord with faith in your heart, believing in your heart, that he died and rose again. And you shall be saved. Belief, faith, it's the same thing, even if stated slightly different. And so pure doctrine are those two things. Jesus is at the top, and salvation is free. And if you get those two things right, then you will continue in the Father and in the Son. And of course, practically speaking, since Christianity is more than just intellectual, something you think, something you believe, we love one another. He said, if you hold on to sound doctrine and you love each other with unfeigned hearts, sincere hearts without any hypocrisy, then you are continuing with the Father and you are continuing with the Son. And you know what? You don't need mystical signs 
Like the Gnostics were saying, you had to have a, a meditative experience to acquire some secret knowledge. You don't need that. You don't need to speak in tongues. You don't need to be slain in the spirit. All you need is pure sound doctrine and to love one another. That's it. In fact, I think that Jesus anticipated that some of this stuff would happen in the early church, in our modern church. And that's why in uh, Luke 10, verse 20, whenever the 70, when they come back from casting out the demons and doing their ministry, their supernatural ministry, when they come back, um, they rejoiced because devils submitted to them. And he said, don't rejoice that the devils submit to you, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. He's like, what you did was good. I told you to do it, but that's not what you need to be excited about. You need to be excited about the fact that you are written in heaven's book, the book of eternal life, the Lamb's book of life. And in Luke 16, 31, in the parable of the, the rich man and Lazarus, that story, um, that account has Abraham say to the man who's in Hades that if Lazarus was to come back from the dead and go talk to your brothers, that they wouldn't listen to him because they've already got Moses they got the law, they got the prophets, and if they're not going to listen to that, they will not believe even if a person comes back from the dead. People are talking about power, power, we need power. You know, we need that Pentecostal power, speaking in tongues, smacking people on the head, and being healed instantaneously, bringing people back from the dead, okay? We're not going to get into that today, okay? We've done studies on this in the past, and maybe we need to do another one in the future, but that's not going to convince someone if they reject the testimony of Scripture. Why is it that we think that the power lies in the signs, but it doesn't lie in the Word of God? What were the signs meant to do? Point people to the Word of God. That's probably what would happen when Jesus is here on earth and still people. You know, when he comes back and says, it's, it's a, Yeah, it's amazing um, that... In the millennium, all this stuff's going to happen. Supernatural stuff. I mean, things that defy natural explanation. You would think. I mean, you got the lion laying down with the the oxen. You know, the 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 yeah, the lion and the lamb. Uh, you ha that's true. But imagine hearing the testimony though of your parents. Again, it goes back to that testimony. You know, there was a time where this lion would have. Eating that lamb. Yeah, that's true. But uh, but even but think about push it back to the tribulation. In the tribulation, you're going to have the two witnesses performing miracles themselves, and so the miracles in and of themselves will not convince someone. Okay, there's signposts that point to the word of God, and if someone won't accept the word of God because the message is not palatable to them then they're not going to listen to you even if they have the signs. Absolutely. And that's something that I think is downplayed so much. Um, even among Baptists, I think that it becomes so dry. And, you know, you'll take these classes in seminary, and it's very intellectual. And it's good to know that stuff, you know, to study the Word of God, understand its background, understand the language. But there's almost this, this idea that, you know, it's, it's based on my understanding, my reason, my rationality. It's so much dependence on me to defend the Bible, to translate the Bible, to interpret the Bible, that it lose its, its living and active nature. And so I became convinced towards my senior year in college that the best way of doing apologetics is to do it in concert with the Word of God. If you're not sharing the Word of God, 
like actually memorizing it and quoting it from memory when you're defending your faith, I feel like there's an element missing there. I think that just speaking God's word out loud is powerful. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I think that when we do apologetics, when we share our faith, we ought to bring the word of God up. They may call us Bible thumpers, but that's because they're being cut to the heart like the people were at Pentecost. They had a positive response as a result of the conviction. They believed. But at the Sanhedrin, they were cut to the heart and they hardened themselves. And, and you know what? I used to dislike that statement so much, but the older I've gotten, the more I've studied the Word of God. I fully agree with that. Absolutely. What? Oh, say, say it again, Christy, off the top of your head. Well, I want, I want them to hear the quote. They'll pick it up. Scott says he's our tech guy. He says y'all will pick up the quote that Christy just gave us from Charles Spurgeon. <laughs> All right, so uh, we're going to... Um, Stop there, but I want to read this last quote. And we'll finish points two through four next week. I, guys, I had to recap those things because they're so important. And I just felt afterwards, after I taught last week, man, I missed that. That's so important. I feel guilty. I got to go back to that. And so I wanted y'all to hear those things. Um, but wrapping things up, I want to say this. There are times to ag agree to disagree when it comes to minor points of doctrine. But there are also times to be a Bible-thumping fundamentalist. And I want to explain where I get that from. And I'm going to read these verses again. We've already talked about them, but it's always good to see it again. In 1 John 1, it says from the very beginning, verse, verse 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John saying, stay with us. Listen to us. This is not something to agree, to disagree on with the Gnostics. On minor points of doctrine, if it's not explicitly stated in Scripture, if it doesn't violate a principle of Scripture, then it's okay to agree to disagree. But when it comes to these things that we've been discussing today, John says, stay with us. Because if you depart from this, if you don't continue with us, you're not continuing with the Father and you're not continuing with the Son. And we can say with just as much dogmatism that if you don't stick with Jesus as fully God, you don't believe that, and you don't stick with the gospel as a free offer to receive forgiveness through faith in Jesus, faith alone, grace alone, if you don't stick with those two things, then you are not continuing with the Father and you're not continuing with the Son. It's okay to be a Bible-thumping fundamentalist when it comes to those points. And so with that, God bless you, and we will resume our study next week.